0: Welcome to the UCAN Podcast. On this episode, we chat with Dr. Jeff Volick, professor in the Department of Human Sciences at Ohio State University and world-renowned expert in low-carb research. Our discussion focuses on controlling your carbohydrates for health, fitness, and performance. The UCAN Podcast starts now.
1: Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you very much for joining us today, spending your lunch break for many of you uh, with UCAN and Dr. Jeff Bolick. I'm Varun Shriram, your host today, and really, really happy to welcome Dr. Jeff Bolick to the discussion today. Dr. Bolick is a cutting-edge researcher looking at dietary issues impacting health in America. Jeff, thank you so much for spending some time with us this afternoon.
2: Hi, everyone. Great, Great to be here. Thank you.
1: Fantastic. And Jeff, uh, just uh, before we get started, just want to give folks uh, a little bit more of an understanding of of who you are and and some of the work that you've done. So Jeff's credentials, uh, they're impressive. A PhD in exercise physiology and nutrition, a master's in exercise science, uh, both from Penn State University. And Jeff's primary research uh, over the years uh, has really focused uh, in two areas. Number one is on the physiological adaptations to low-carb diets with an emphasis on outcomes related to metabolic syndrome, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. Um, he's also conducted a, a lot of research on the impact of dietary supplements on exercise performance and overall health, um, and lots of research specifically on whey protein. And uh, I know many of you in the audience have, have likely read um, Jeff's uh, two of Jeff's uh, books, uh, The Art and Science of Low-Carb Living, The Art and Science of Low-Carb Performance. Jeff's also... Um, been involved authoring another book, The New Atkins for a New You. Uh, all really, really good, informative, educational reads. So strongly encourage you folks to check those out for more information. Uh, but Jeff, before we get started um, in the meat of our discussion, what uh, I wanted to find out a little bit of your background. What, what got you interested? Um, you know, overall in in exercise physiology and nutrition, um, and then more so from there, what got you interested specifically in exploring the benefits of a low carbohydrate diet.
2: Well, very very briefly, I you know I was an athlete as uh, as a kid and you know was active uh, in sports throughout high school and just became very interested in how I could optimize my performance through nutrition. So when I went to college uh, at Michigan State, I studied dietetics with the hopes that uh, you know I could learn something about how my body responded to food and enhance my performance. Uh, so this was. 25 plus years ago, uh, and as you can imagine, um, going through a traditional dietetics program, I was, you know, I was taught the basic virtues of a low-fat diet and more or less a, you know, one-size-fits-all cookie-cutter approach to um, prescribing diets for all conditions, and that really wasn't uh, exactly satisfying to me. So as I was, uh, you know, pursuing my uh, graduate work I you know I wanted uh, to get involved more in research and and more cutting-edge type concepts and I was very fortunate to uh, you know to go to Penn State and work with uh, you know world-class mentor there William Kramer who I continue to work with today and you know we were just in a very vibrant research uh, laboratory and culture and really pushing the envelope and studying a variety of different exercise and nutritional interventions and that's where I really was exposed to creatine uh, supplementation for the first time and started to do a whole series of studies uh, as part of my master's thesis and uh, several follow-up studies over the next decade. But that really sort of sparked an interest in me uh, in the scientific process and and being exposed to the scientific method and really wanting to understand nutrition on a much deeper level, that led me to, uh, you know, low carbohydrate diets, um, which was sort of an anathema to the rest of the mainstream nutritional consensus uh, world, and you know, and that's kind of taking me down a rabbit hole over the last 20 years and trying to. Uh, you know push that concept out as uh, you know as one approach to maintaining health, especially for those individuals who uh, who don't process carbohydrates very well. and so we've been sort of uh, pushing the uh, the science in terms of uh, how low carbohydrate diets might uh, be a better approach for managing obesity and diabetes. and now even uh, for elite athletes uh, who uh, who are not responding well to the high-carb, carb-loading approaches.
1: In starting our discussion, Jeff, uh, there there seems to be, um, you know, over the last several years, this awakening in the national consciousness of the ill effects of sugars and refined grains. um, And now the uh, 2015 U.S. dietary guidelines that are expected to be adopted um, includes a reduction in sugar and refined grains as as one of um, the major points of it. And, And, you know, some are Calling um, this a "quote-unquote" radical recommendation to cap added sugar to 10% of the daily diet. Now, now the old dietary guidelines from 2010 uh, recommended about 45 to 65% of calories come from carbohydrate for for adults. Um, just from a general perspective, Jeff, what are the health concerns with a diet that is high in sugar and refined grains?
2: Well, the way I like to sort of bring this up, and this is not always described in this way, is the principle of human carbohydrate intolerance. And this really stems from over 200 million years of evolution when most of us were exposed to little amounts of carbohydrates. And now in you know, in today's modern world, sort of post-advent of modern agriculture, most of us are exposed to a whole lot of carbohydrates. and The fundamental problem is the majority of us are now showing signs of metabolic dysfunction and for many in this group a modest reduction in dietary carbohydrates suffices to prevent overt illness but there's at least a third of us with metabolic syndrome or type 2 diabetes that requires that we restrict carbs even more perhaps at the level that induces keto adaptation And this is a process that sustains optimum fuel flow to all organs, including the brain. Through use of metabolic pathways, we've acquired over 2 million years of evolution as hunters and gatherers. So it's this idea that we're really over-consuming carbohydrate, and that includes both sugars and starches, relative to our individual tolerance. And that really does vary a lot from person to person. But when you when you do overconsume carbs, um, a whole lot of metabolic problems start to manifest that if over time leads to type 2 diabetes, heart disease, and probably other non-communicable diseases like cancer, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's as well. Uh, it's quite interesting how all of these chronic diseases, although very complex at, in terms of the pathophysiology, seem to have a common thread that relates back to... Insulin resistance or carbohydrate intolerance. So, although nutrition is very complex, and so is chronic disease, um, you know there 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 is a lot of footprints in the sand that are leading us back to this idea we're over-consuming sugars and starches, and disposing of them in improper ways that, over time, really harms the body.
1: Now, specifically, um, Jeff, the the Carbohydrate is the, the nutrient that's most going to impact your blood sugar levels. And um, as we're looking on the screen here, um, why should we be concerned about our blood sugar levels? W- what does blood sugar dictate? What does blood sugar um, kind of affect that's occurring in our bodies?
2: Well, again, at, over, at risk of oversimplifying things here, I mean, the the problem with over-consuming carbohydrates is you really start to bias your metabolism toward carbohydrate oxidation. While simultaneously inhibiting your body's ab- ability to burn fat, and this is a very, you know, re- predictable, reliable effect of carbohydrates. And we're starting to understand uh, when cells switch over to burning almost all carbs. That's not necessarily a, a healthy outcome. Uh, we're much better off if we're burning fat most of the time and only rely on carbohydrate metabolism when we have to do intense types of exercise. Uh, whereas most of the time during rest and some maximal exercise, if we can burn more fat, that's a good thing. Uh, so that's kind of a, you know, one aspect. The other is when you eat carbs, your body stimulates insulin levels. And we're now understanding that constantly bombarding your pancreas to secrete more insulin in order to dispose of that carbohydrate leads to a lot of problems as well. You know, notwithstanding the fact that's the primary stimulus for inhibiting the fat burning, but insulin, in and of itself, uh, probably causes harm to cells, uh, and may actually be an important driver in in many types of cancer, for example.
1: So, how did we get here, Jeff? I guess that's the big question. Um, uh, you know, how oh, and why was the food pyramid that we followed over the last several decades structured in such a way where you know the the average American uh, is really over-consuming carbohydrate.
2: Yeah, I mean that that's a fascinating discussion, and people have written books about that topic. But in you know, I guess the simple answer is we you know we have a burgeoning population. We have we had to feed a lot of people, and agriculture was you know one solution where we could grow a lot of food relatively cheaply and, and feed many people. And subsequently, that's you know that's became a you know a staple uh... food in the diet we've built an entire economy and industry around carbohydrate based foods and then you have sugar um, you know the advent of sugar and uh... and high fructose corn syrup and all these types of things as well on top of the grains and starches that are predominating our diet and you have to understand this is relatively recent and when you look in, in in the context of the you know, human History. I mean, you know, if agriculture was invented ten thousand years ago, that's, you know, that's one or two percent of human history. So we haven't had a lot of time um, to evolve to be able to handle all this extra carbohydrate that we're consuming. And so again, we're coming back to this idea of carbohydrate intolerance. Um, you know, most of human history, we just did not have to deal with the, the loads of sugars and starches that we're dealing with today. And many people are just not hardwired to be able to process all these carbohydrates. So I, I think we had good intentions, but in many ways, um, you know, modern agriculture um, has caused us. To be obese and type 2 diabetic. Now there is a minority of the population that does fine on that, but when you have two thirds of Americans overweight, uh, one third with metabolic syndrome, that's actually a minority of the people. I mean, the majority of, of us now would be considered unhealthy based on you know BMI. Uh, but we do have to always appreciate that you know there's a lot of differences between people, and uh, when we talk about diet and nutrition, we always have to, you know, appreciate this idea of uh, individual variation amongst people, but clearly a lot of people are struggling to process the current level of carbohydrate they're consuming and that's why we have these epidemics of obesity and diabetes that are spreading across the planet like a slow-moving plague.
1: And, and to that that point, Jeff, uh, you know, it, as you, you've spoken about carbohydrate intolerance, I guess um, part of uh, part of what goes into to this restriction of carbohydrates and, and how much an individual may uh, feel the need or, or, or the benefit in, in doing so depends on their individual tolerance to carbohydrate, which you just detailed. Now, the, if we kind of look at the spectrum of, of things we may discuss today, you know, you've got your um, your extreme restriction of carbohydrate, which is the, the ketogenic diet, which you referenced, um, which is really uh, teaching your body to to utilize different uh, pathways for for fuel. Um, then you've got you know kind of low carb, which uh, I, I don't know what the kind of the formal definition is. I'll I'll, I'll ask you to to weigh in on that in a moment. And then we've got this idea simply of Carbohydrate control—you um, know, trying to lower your intake of, of simple sugars and, and refined carbohydrates. How do you, um, in thinking about, you know, kind of the different ways people talk about this? How, how do you view them? You know, is there is there is there a number that uh, people consider low carb? Um, is there a number that uh, people should look at for for a ketogenic diet? I just love you to uh, to weigh in on that.
2: Yeah, you know that's a, that's a great question and there really are no formal definitions for some of these terms like high carbohydrate, low carbohydrate, or ketogenic. Uh, People have kind of operationally defined those terms by, you know, certain percentage or absolute amount of carbohydrate in the diet. But I think, you know, we could debate what those numbers might be. But at the end of the day, coming back to the idea that, you know, it all comes down you know to the person it really depends on your own level of carbohydrate intolerance so to me uh, finding that level of co- carbohydrate tolerance for yourself and making sure you consume less than that is really key to maintaining health and unfortunately we don't have objective diagnostic tests today that that really you know, give us objective information on, on whether or not we're consuming a level below our tolerance, but we have to kind of find that out through self-experimentation. And if you can you know, maintain your weight and maintain your blood sugar levels and hemoglobin A1C and other health parameters, then you're consuming carbs at an appropriate level. Uh, so everybody's different. Some people have a high genetic propensity to develop type 2 diabetes when they consume carbs. Other people don't. But it even changes within a person over the lifespan. So you may be able to tolerate more carbs when you're younger. But as you age, you tend to develop more insulin resistance or carbohydrate intolerance, and so you may have to adjust your carbohydrate intake as you enter into middle age, and 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 so on. So it's a, can be even a moving target within a person. But this this to me is really fundamental in the idea of personalized nutrition and personalized medicine or personalized health, uh, which are sort of big areas of of interest now in the scientific world and and we're starting to understand that a little better in terms of how we can begin to move toward that um, personalized approach to, to nutrition.
1: So one of the areas, Jeff, that you, you have been an advocate for um, for different purposes has been the, the ketogenic diet. And it's something that you've uh, you know also um, experienced and um, done yourself. Um, what are the benefits starting there, you know, it's kind of starting, uh, in the, the, where, where you're restricting carbohydrates, uh, the most, um, what benefits have you seen, um, from that ketogenic diet? And if you could just kind of explain to folks, um, maybe, um, you know, it, your personal experience with it as well.
2: Well, sure. A ketogenic diet is one that's very low in carbohydrates and it does vary from person to person, but on average, um, You know, we're talking about a a diet that has less than 50 grams per day of carbohydrate, and that really results in a very powerful stimulus for the body to shift over to burning fat, and as part of that process of breaking down fat at an accelerated rate, your body starts to produce ketones, uh, thus the the name ketogenic diet. And, uh, And that seems extreme for people, but part of the reason it's People perceive it as extreme is because we were sort of biased in our, our view of what's normal. But again, throughout most of human history, uh, we were in a ketogenic state because we didn't have a lot of access to carbohydrates, uh, or at least transiently, we went through um, ketogenic periods. So when you look at this, um, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, it's a perfectly natural process. We've just gotten away from it over the last, you know, especially 40 or 50 years or so because we're constantly suppressing this metabolic pathway of ketosis by con- because we're consuming carbohydrates. Uh, but when you restrict carbs, this pathway awakens and uh, there's a lot of positive health benefits associated with being in a state of nutritional ketosis, uh, especially if you're insulin resistant and carb intolerant, which uh, at one end of the spectrum is your type 2 diabetics. And the effects of a ketogenic diet in type 2 diabetics is remarkable. Uh, You can actually reverse type 2 diabetes with a well-formulated ketogenic diet such that a person has no overt signs or symptoms of the disease, and you can reverse metabolic syndrome or pre-diabetes. But we're also learning now ketogenic diets may be useful in a variety of other conditions, ranging from control of seizures, which we've known for quite some time, but now other neurological diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's are showing uh, positive effects of uh, ketogenic diets. Some types of cancer may be very amenable to ketogenic diets, although that, you know, research is still in its infancy. Uh, And, you know, just for better control of weight and uh, and and other metabolic problems. So, you know, the the uh, clinical implications are pretty profound. And then there's also a growing number of athletes who are restricting carbohydrates at a level that induces ketosis, and they may not be doing it necessarily to manage diabetes or, or health problems, but they're doing it because of the perceived benefits in performance and/or recovery.
1: One of the things you said was that, um, you know, to, to some folks, the, the ketogenic diet uh, seems extreme. Um, can you just expand on that a little bit? You know, why is it difficult for a lot of folks to completely eliminate carbohydrate from the diet and to follow that ketogenic diet?
2: Well, you know, it's it's what they're used to. I mean, most people are probably eating over half their calories from carbohydrates in the form of sugar and starches. So, you're asking them now to eat in a way that's very different and Food choices obviously are very different, um, and and it's often going against what they've been taught in school and what their uh, families and friends, um, you know, may be telling them. And so, you know, it's quite a uh, a cultural uh, shift to uh, to switch to this way of eating. Although a growing number of people are doing that, uh, so I, you know, it, it's certainly challenging uh, in the real world because. Carbohydrates are so ubiquitous everywhere, uh, but you know, with, with education and knowledge about carbohydrate content of foods, uh, it's it's very you know realistic to eat this way. And, there, and to maybe the surprise of many people listening, the diet has quite a a, a large variety of foods that can be uh, selected from, and the diet is incredibly you know pleasurable and. Even if you're into cooking and cuisine, uh, there's a tremendous amount of variety in terms of meal preparation and uh, and recipe uh, formulation and so forth. So uh, it's a very doable and sustainable type of diet, despite popular belief.
1: So for those folks um, that, you know, for for the the factors you just outlined, um, are not going to completely eliminate Uh, carbohydrate from the diet or or, or severely restrict carbohydrate, um, there's still a way for them to realize, uh, you know, the health and and the performance benefits, uh, some of the health and performance benefits that that you've outlined. um, And that's truly by focusing on the quality of carbohydrates. So what should people who are consuming carbohydrate try to understand, um, you know, what makes one carb different from another carb?
2: Right. Absolutely. You know, not everyone needs a ketogenic diet. Um, not everyone needs a low-carb diet. This is, again, where the personalization comes in. So we've been talking a lot about the quantity of carbohydrates, which I do believe is very important. It's the first-order effect, the thing that, you know, is probably most important to pay attention to. But, uh, you know, equally important is the quality of the carbohydrates, as you suggest, and for many people, just manipulating the quality of the carbohydrates Uh, you know, emphasizing those carbohydrates that are less detrimental to their metabolism. It's all they need to improve their health and and maintain their health long term. You know, I'm a big believer both the quantity and the quality of carbohydrate are really probably the most important determinants of of health when it comes to nutrition.
1: People talk about Slow-release carbohydrates, uh, low glycemic carbohydrates. Can you just explain um, sort of that difference between that low glycemic versus high glycemic carbohydrate as it relates to the quality of carbohydrate?
2: You know, it's a little bit of an oversimplification to talk about good and bad carbohydrates, but um, uh, at least one way to operationally define that is based on how rapidly the Carbohydrate is absorbed and appears in the blood as glucose. So, in general, a carbohydrate that rapidly elevates blood sugar uh, tends to cause a lot more uh, metabolic mayhem in the body, just because it's it's perceived as a stress. Um, the body has to uh, drive that blood sugar down as rapidly as it can, and it does that by uh, elevating insulin levels, which uh, if it's working properly drives that blood sugar into cells uh, including fat cells um, but also muscle cells and other cells in the body and that's you know that's not how we evolved to uh, you know to operate on a daily basis day after day week after week month after month but yet that's what most people punish their bodies with every time they eat a meal at breakfast lunch and dinner they're forcing their pancreas to work overtime to maintain their blood sugar levels so it's a really I think unhealthy way to maintain health by constantly going through this sort of roller coaster up and down cycle of blood sugar levels whereas it makes much more sense to have a slow release of blood sugar into the system that doesn't Cause a rapid uh, increase in insulin levels, and that allows you also to maintain fat burning at a higher rate and have a more stable blood sugar level. It just is more compatible with health on a, you know, on a variety of uh, you know fronts.
1: So you know, Jeff, one of the carbohydrates that, that really kind of uh, fits the ideal that that you just uh, discussed is. The super starch carbohydrate in, in Generation can And uh, this is something that um, from an early stage, you were involved um, in uh, with some of the, the initial research uh, about super starch. And I'd, I'd just like you to take a, a couple of minutes to kind of uh, speak about, um, you know, what intrigued you uh, about the properties of super starch. And, um, you know, maybe we can start uh, just by having you talk about uh, the origins of the carbohydrate um, and what it was created for.
2: Yeah, I think, I, you know, I was exposed to superstarch almost a decade ago and and I was really taken back by the story and the origins of the company that that, you know now manufactures superstarch because you know it it really is a very unique starch and and for those not familiar uh, you know superstarch has a very uh, unique slow absorption profile that manifest in its most distinguishing feature which is to maintain blood glucose levels for several hours after consumption and this has proved transformative as a therapeutic tool for management of kids with glycogen storage disease in particular type one glycogen storage disease and that's actually how you know the superstarch story started because the founders uh, one of the founders has a child with this very Rare genetic disorder that uh, is type 1 glycogen storage disease, and you see um, Jonah on the screen. Uh, and this, you know, this is a single point mutation in a gene um, uh, in this case, glycogen, or I'm sorry, glucose six phosphatase in the liver, which controls um, release of glucose uh, from the liver into the blood. And the way this manifests in these kids is they um, they, don't maintain their blood sugar very well, so they literally have to eat every couple hours to maintain normal blood sugar. And you can imagine just how stressful and and, and devastating this can be on on the child and the families to to manage this disorder. And so the family um, was very motivated to search for cures and better ways to manage the disease. And Came upon uh, work done by some researchers in Scotland uh, that were investigating all sorts of different carbohydrate sources and testing their glycemic profiles, and came upon uh, superstarch, which you know is actually made from natural ingredients. Uh, it's a waxy maize high amylopectin starch, uh, and that's uh, not what you know makes it unique. It's actually the uh, proprietary processing which involves uh, prolonged uh, treatment with heat and water that somehow we don't completely understand all the details changes the way this carbohydrate is digested in the gut uh, and the small intestines Uh, but in the end we know that it is absorbed very slowly. Um, but completely, so it's not in the category of uh, you know a fiber or a resistant starch, which which is not completely absorbed. Um, and and again, this has really changed the way kids with with this rare genetic disorder are managed because now instead of having to eat every couple hours, uh, they can last all night. So they may go uh, six eight hours uh, without experiencing hypoglycemia, and this is you know this is uh, just completely game-changing for for these families um, so you know that's a pretty small percentage of the population though with this disease and so the company clearly saw UCAN clearly saw the uh, greater application of this slow absorption profile and this starch technology uh, and really uh, at least uh, initially um, has marketed this as a alternative to the sugar-based sports drinks and gels that uh, many athletes and active individuals are using. So it's really been, a, I think, a true revolution in the sports nutrition um, beverage and, and sports nutrition carbohydrate uh, field. Um, and now it's even extending into uh, more general consumer uh, health and, uh, and specifically type 2 diabetes and pre-diabetes. So we're seeing, um, you know, much broader applications of the starch beyond glycogen storage disease and even beyond now sports nutrition.
1: One of the things you mentioned uh, in, in terms of super starch was that ability to to keep blood glucose stable, and th- that's really what the, the graph we're looking at on the screen with the red line. You're seeing that that equivalent dose of super starch compared to maltodextrin, which is a, a fast-acting carbohydrate that you find in uh, you know, uh, a number of popular sports nutrition products that that equivalent serving of, of super starch is really delivering that slow and steady release and, and keeping blood glucose stable, uh, instead of giving you that that big spike and crash effect for maltodextrin. Now, one of the things, um, Jeff, that that you were um, uh, observing um, was the, a clinical trial that was conducted at the University of Oklahoma on, on racing team cyclists. And one of the uh, looking at the graph on the screen, one of the the key um, implications of the super starch carbohydrate was that it didn't impact insulin levels like your typical carbohydrates do. Can you just speak um, a little bit to why that matters? That that we have a carbohydrate that's really causing very little insulin response.
2: Yeah, of course. We you know we had a couple of clinical papers in the glycogen storage disease literature and and one even in the type one diabetic literature. Uh, but this was the first study in athletes, uh, and it was the first time insulin had been measured. I mean, we knew that the starch didn't result in a spike in blood sugar, but uh, we didn't really have any data on insulin. And the reason, you know, insulin is important is that's the primary regulator of lipolysis or fat breakdown. So when you're an athlete, even if you're very healthy, insulin sensitive, when you, when you eat carbohydrate. Um, that carbohydrate preferentially gets oxidized and at the same time it inhibits fat burning and that in- inhibition is primarily a result of the insulin response and so you know that whether that's good or bad you know we could, we could have a debate about but what's clear is that it's changing metabolism and uh, in this case were you know with the insulin spike you see there is very dramatic with the maltodextrin that in turn is having an inhibitory effect on subsequent fat burning and uh, and fat breakdown in these um in this case these were healthy uh well-trained cyclists
1: so you know jeff uh, seeing i uh, was seeing a lot of questions um coming in and, and i'll uh, address one um so jay asks um with a lower insulin level, does it inhibit your ability to replenish depleted glycogen stores in the body post-exercise? How should people view uh, a slower carbohydrate versus a faster acting carbohydrate when they're thinking of glycogen replenishment?
2: Well, the way I would answer that is if you're burning more fat during exercise because you're not spiking your insulin levels and you know and emphasizing carbohydrate oxidation because of the sugar you're consuming then you have less glycogen to resynthesize post-exercise because in general you're you're switching your body over to using alternative fuel sources ie fat to a greater extent and and so there's less overall uh, need to resynthesize glycogen but um, having said that you would likely have very similar levels of glycogen synthesis post exercise because the primary driver of of glycogen synthesis during that window or of an hour or two after exercise is not insulin levels it's availability of glucose so um, you know so there's been many studies kind of comparing low and high glycemic index carbs post exercise on glycogen resynthesis And the effects are pretty minor. So, you know, you might argue you get a slight benefit of a high glycemic index carb post-exercise in terms of glycogen synthesis, but it's really small. And it's pretty myopic thinking in my mind because there's a lot of downside to uh, consuming a high glycemic index carb post-exercise in terms of inhibiting fat burning, inhibiting many of the beneficial effects of exercise on health. We know that when you don't consume high glycemic index carbs post-exercise, you, know, you upregulate a lot of genes that are associated with health. You see improvements in insulin sensitivity, for example, and you can completely eliminate those positive effects by ingesting high glycemic index carbs. So you know, in order to get this hypothetical small benefit in glycogen synthesis, you're giving up a lot of the health benefits of exercise. So it's really short-sighted. Uh, in terms of the big picture.
1: Now, Jeff, uh, when we talked about, uh, you know, started this discussion uh, in in talking about what is a, a quality carb, um, many of the the things that you mentioned pertain specifically um, to super starch as well. You know, when when you were speaking just in general terms about what makes something uh, a quality carbohydrate, uh, so with something like super starch, where do you see the application? Uh, I mean, uh, across the board, whether it's health, fitness, or performance, who can benefit from something that has the properties of super starch.
2: Well, I I consider it a very high quality carb. So I think it fits in kind of across the board, whether you're on a low carb, moderate carb or high carb diet, I think it would be beneficial to, you know, to consume UCAN in place of some of the higher glycemic index carbs or sugars in the diet uh, across the board, uh, and many athletes are, um, are using it also because it's much gentler on the stomach. So sort of independent of this slow absorption profile, um, it's structurally a very large molecule. And so it's, uh, it actually has a very low osmolality. And that basically translates into better tolerability in the gut. So it doesn't sit in your stomach for long periods of time, which is what really causes a lot of the GI problems. So it gets out of the stomach quickly, It's in the intestines where the digestion slows down. So a lot of athletes who really struggle with sugars uh, and sports drinks and so forth in terms of GI distress um, tolerate UCAN very well.
1: Let's start a little bit with um, general health and, you know, as we see now, low-carb or carbohydrate control is really being embraced um, across all spheres and perhaps, uh, and and maybe you can comment on this better, Jeff, but but getting to be more mainstream, um, where do you feel we are uh, as a country right now um, in terms of low-carbohydrate or carbohydrate control um, compared to where we've been in all your years uh, being involved with the research?
2: Well we're definitely, it's been a slow process um, in terms of changing dietary guidelines and dietary beliefs in this country, but what's been more consistent is the science. I mean it, you know, I think the, I'd say the resurgence in interest in this area in the scientific community started around 2000 and you know it's been a remarkable decade and a half in terms of the amount of positive literature on low carbohydrate diets uh, when looked at as a whole, you know it's, it's very consistent, and uh, and in many cases you will see low-carbohydrate diets outperforming low-fat diets in studies looking at weight loss, improvements in metabolic syndrome, diabetes, etc. So there's clearly a, you know, I think a compelling body of literature around low-carb diets. But in terms of, you know, the population, I was actually quite surprised to see a report. It was a Nielsen. Uh, survey of, it was actually a world or global uh, view of wellness, including many questions about nutrition. And according to that survey, uh, I think it was over 25% of Americans were on a low carbohydrate diet. Uh, so there was no real verification of that, but when people are asked, Are you following a low carbohydrate diet? Over, one in four people uh, said yes. So I, that, to me, um, was pretty surprising. I mean, I knew it was. I knew more people were interested in this,
1: but uh,
2: I was a little surprised that it was that high.
1: What what sort of factors um, when people are reducing their carbohydrate intake for overall health should people be paying attention to? How how can they know this is working?
2: Well, I think you know people are are frustrated. They're gaining weight
1: they, uh, as
2: they get older and they may you know try low-fat diets and and many people who (laughs) have tremendous willpower still are you know are struggling to to lose the weight or keep the weight off and so there's a lot of just just, you know justified frustration around uh, not being able to maintain their weight or their health and so they're looking for alternatives and uh, I think for most people it's you know, they 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 have to kind of monitor their weight, monitor their health parameters, and uh, and use that as a guide to whether or not what you're do- currently doing is working. If it's not, um, it, you know, I think you have to really look at the carbohydrates in the diet, and I think looking at the quantity and the quality of the carbohydrates, uh, you know, are really the first two things that that need to be evaluated in your diet if you're not currently satisfied with your weight or your metabolic, uh, parameters.
1: The study on, on UCAN that we referenced, um, was, you know, was, uh, was done on, on highly trained cyclists and, um, but, but what is there, um, in that study that can be extrapolated to apply for general health is, is UCAN something for, for non-athletes that can be beneficial to, to utilize as a tool in their daily diet?
2: the more you can switch your body over to burning fat efficiently and teaching your body uh, and coaxing it to be able to process fat more efficiently that's the key for maintaining weight maintaining health having more energy both physically as well as cognitively and and just be, you know having a greater overall sense of well-being uh, it's really hard to have all those things when you're constantly Eating, you know, sugars and starches that are causing your blood sugar to go up and down. Uh, I mean, there's only a small percentage of the population that can really maintain health while doing that. So, uh, we see in the Oklahoma study that clearly uh, there was a much less uh, of uh, excursion in, in insulin levels and a more stable source of fuel and greater fat breakdown and fat oxidation in the in the you can superstarch condition
1: interesting uh, statement from barbara in, in the um in the audience she she shared that uh, a ketogenic diet has allowed me to reverse my metabolic syndrome, lose over sixty pounds in five months, and complete a half marathon and three sprint triathlons during that time. It really works, and Dr. Volick's book changed and saved my life and then and then she adds, you can is the sole nutrition I use during endurance training and competition other than some protein powders. so Um, you know, Barbara's one of many folks, um, who we're hearing from and Jeff, I'm sure you're hearing from that. That's really, um, utilizing this approach, um, to take control of, of her health. And it's, it's fantastic, Barbara. Thanks for sharing. And, um, really fantastic, uh, Jeff, when, when you hear things like that, I know this is something, uh, it really through the research that, that you've done that you strongly believed in, um, you know, for, for many years now. Um, but when, when you Hear more and more people coming out and, and saying things like that. Um, do you ever kind of feel like I knew this all along, or, or uh, how do you how do you view that?
2: Well, I mean that's outstanding and congratulations, Barbara. But it, it's very inspiring for me. It, it, it's confirmatory of, I guess, the science that we've been doing. But it, you know, you never know how much the science really applies or translates to. Real people, so it's it's just tremendous to hear those stories. Um, but but there are many of those stories where you know when you fix a person's metabolism uh, and by re- restricting their carbs to a level they can tolerate, not only does it you know improve their weight control and their metabolic parameters, but it you know it gives them more energy because you've opened up their fuel flow. So that you know, before they, everything was kind of clogged up, they weren't able to process carbs well because they're carb intolerant. They're not burning fat well because their mitochondria are not uh, developed. Um, so when you sort of correct all of those metabolic problems simply by restricting the carbs, then they actually want to go exercise. They have the energy to run half marathons or marathons, and and that sort of has then a uh, you know a self reinforcing health promoting effects that go along you know sort of complement the the diet and uh and so it's it's fantastic very encouraging you know to to know that what we're kind of seeing in the laboratory is is playing out you know with many people around around the world
1: jeff let's shift gears a little bit to performance because we have a lot of questions um you know on the on the performance aspect of of this um and you know i I just want to highlight one thing um that that's interesting is that, that you see more and more high level athletes um adopting this approach and uh, i believe last summer there, there was there's a lot of uh, media coverage uh, in, a, in a sports illustrated article about lebron james uh, who dropped uh, you know a significant amount of weight um somewhere in the range of 15 to 20 pounds um by um really reducing his carbohydrate and sugar intake um and adopting a lower carbohydrate diet and uh, in this article jeff uh, you were um, quoted as saying that there's a growing number of athletes who have been told that they need carbs and now you see them questioning that conventional wisdom you've obviously done a lot of um, work in sports nutrition you have a lot of your former students that are that are working with various um, pro and collegiate teams what are, what are you seeing um, with uh, elite athletes now um, adopting this approach
2: yeah well you know clearly with 30 million Americans with diabetes and 60 million with pre diabetes, we you know, our work with low carb diets is really focused on that group just because of the you know the cost and the impact. Uh, but what's been really fascinating in the last few years in particular is there have been this sort of growing legion of athletes, in particular in the ultra endurance world, but also in, in, in different sports like basketball that have abandoned their traditional high carb diet and in favor of a you know low carb, moderate protein high fat diet and we've you know I've kind of known that this could be potentially beneficial for certain athletes but we really hadn't focused on that in the laboratory uh, and you know, there's not a lot of funding to do that type of work so it you know it's just been kind of more of a an interest to h- hypothesize about it but you know now there's all these athletes out there that are experiencing benefit from the diet and talking about it online in many cases um, and And so, uh, uh, it's starting to become a population that potentially could be studied. And you know that's something that you know I was interested in doing, and we actually designed a study a couple years ago uh, to do that. and And there's many other groups now, I think very interested in this area to better understand the low- carb athlete or the keto adapted athlete. But clearly, that's a growing trend, and it's very. <laughs> counterintuitive in at least in terms of traditional understanding of the need for carbs if you want to optimize performance and recovery that you know we've been told for the last 4 decades but there's no denying the fact that these athletes are doing well i mean nobody's putting a gun to their head saying you have to restrict carbohydrates they're doing it because there's some self-perceived benefit and at least in the ultra endurance world i mean it's more than just finishing races Many of these guys and gals are winning races and in, in many cases setting U.S. and even world records. So it's real. Uh, it's not every athlete, but there's clearly some athletes that are much better suited by a low-carb diet than a traditional high-carb diet.
1: And when you talk about athletes uh, you know, in the, in the ultra-endurance world uh, utilizing this approach and, and winning races... Um... There was recently an example of this at, uh, Western States. Uh, am I, am I right about that?
2: Yeah. Western States is a, uh, very grueling hundred mile trail run, uh, through the Sierra Nevada mountains. So it's a pretty, uh, amazing race to watch. And I actually took my lab group out there in 2012 and had, we had the opportunity to collect data on a group of athletes, including, um, a group of low carb athletes and, uh, Turns out, yeah, the winner that year, and he came back the subsequent year, uh, was a low-carb athlete. And in 2012, he actually set a course record, beating the previous record by over 30 minutes. So it's quite quite amazing. And and there were several low-carb athletes who finished um, in the top of the pack. So that again is a is a is kind of a game changer for for many athletes uh, that are competing at that level of competition
1: jeff this is a question i'm sure that you you get all the time and we have several people asking a, a different uh variation of this question of you know for for racing or exercise at an intense level say 5k running cycling time trials when you're pushing the intensity and the exertion slow release fuel and fat utilization doesn't seem like it would work well during high intensity exercise can you comment um on that
2: well, we, there's not a lot of great research, uh, at least in the lab, that's evaluated this. But what what you have to understand is, uh, even in the most keto-adapted athlete who's, re, you know, very, you know, consuming very few carbohydrates, they still have glycogen levels. Uh, in fact, our most recent um, study where we had elite keto-adapted athletes in the lab showed they had exactly the same glycogen as their high-carb counterparts and they had the same glycogen depletion during exercise and, re- and synthesis post-exercise so there are some very unexpected adaptations over the long term I mean these were guys who were adapted over uh, an average of 18 months but um but it's not like carbohydrates go away like or your, your carbohydrate stores go away in the form of glycogen when you're keto adapted so if you need to um, you know to access that glycogen it, it's still there Um, And the other, you know, sort of take a step back and and think about the big picture. I mean, most people are not, you know, exercising because they're competing and and performing at the highest level. I mean, they're mostly doing it for health and it makes them feel better and, you know, and for appearance. And you know, um, whatever, you know, if there is a performance benefit of carbs during higher intensity exercise, it's probably small and in my mind it's clearly not contributing to better body composition or better health outcomes. So you know everybody's different, they exercise for different reasons and they also respond different to carbohydrates. So I think every person sort of needs to figure this out, uh, whether or not a low carb approach would be right for them. Uh, And I'm not saying that it should be tried by everybody. I think this is where you know uh, it should be considered as an option and if people choose to try it, we should support them, and we should try to learn how uh, it will affect um, performance and health and recovery. And recovery is the other piece that we don't always talk about, but there may not be a direct benefit of a low-carb diet on high-intensity performance, but there could be indirect benefits on recovery because we know, for example, now that ketone bodies are more than just alternative fuel for the brain. They are actually important potent uh, signals for affecting gene expression, for example. So one of the most common uh, anecdotes from low-carb athletes is that they recover faster and that's probably related to less inflammation, less oxidative stress, just less overall uh, trauma uh, as a result of the high levels of exercise they're doing so they recover faster and they can tolerate then greater amounts of training so that might be sort of an indirect benefit for the more strength or power athletes. Um, they also may be able to lose more body fat easier, and that increases the power to weight ratio. So there's a lot of factors here that, you know, again, kind of need to be considered and weighed in when a person is trying to decide whether or not a low-carb diet is something that would be of benefit for them personally.
1: Now, one of the things as we as we talk about um, uh, the carbohydrate intake and performance that, that sometimes uh, people might get confused about is w- when we're talking about UCAN specifically and and this slower release carbohydrate and and its ability um, to allow you to utilize more more fat. People are sometimes um, not realizing that UCAN is still providing you carbohydrate. So it's not like you know when you're when you're using UCAN, you're solely burning fat. You're getting glucose. It's just the rate. At which you're getting glucose that that is unique about Ucan in in comparison to other traditional carbohydrates that you find in sports nutrition. So, what might the benefit be, um, you know, from a performance standpoint of getting glucose at a steady rate, um, like with with Ucan versus getting uh, that rapid um, delivery of glucose from, say, maltodextrin, which is again, as we talked about, found in uh, a large number of your popular sports nutrition products.
2: Well, UCAN is really unique because, again, it transcends all different levels of carb. I mean, there are keto-adapted athletes using UCAN during exercise where uh, it's not really inhibiting their fat, um, fat burning at all. They're still maintaining ketosis and high levels of fat oxidation because it's just coming in so slowly and not stimulating insulin. Um, but it, it's maintaining their blood sugar levels and it may, it may be having other you know effects we don't fully understand uh, but it's also you know being used by athletes on high carbohydrate diets and again there it's it may you know it may not be um, these athletes may not be having the same high level of fat oxidation but whatever level of fat oxidation you have on a high or moderate carbohydrate diet, if you displace some of the carbs with you can, you would have a proportionally greater amount of reliance on fat. And that's where the benefit comes in. The more you can kind of rely on fat and take the pressure off of of providing a steady source of glucose, the better off you are if you're an athlete. Uh, And better off you are in terms of just the... you know, the, the maintaining health and, and, and extending, you know, the, your, your career if you're an athlete.
1: So Jeff, this might be something that, that you might, um, just have to sort of surmise and, and, and I can share some of the anecdotal uh, data that we've received, but Eric asks, if an athlete's on a ketogenic diet, um, how would you recommend using super starch and what impact would it have on their state of ketosis?
2: Yeah, all I can speak to is,
1: um, anecdotes and, and, and
2: some of the people we've studied in a lab, uh, for example, who were keto-adapted uh, were regular users of UCAN and they were pretty religious in testing their ketones and, and when they used UCAN during um, prolonged exercise, they were still able to maintain ketosis. So it, we, we haven't studied this in the laboratory yet formally uh, in any research studies, but at least anecdotally there are athletes out there on ketogenic diets using... Um, Uh, You can strategically either before uh, or during exercise and it does not seem to be having any impairment in their uh, high levels of fat oxidation.
1: And just, you know, just again, um, kind of extrapolating what you know about um, what throws you in and out of ketosis and, and the way you can works. I mean, obviously we're talking about a carbohydrate that's allowing anecdotally folks to stay in ketosis. Why is this the case? Uh,
2: Well, again, I think it's coming back to the very um, low impact on insulin levels. Uh, Again, insulin is the primary hormone controlling fat breakdown, and that's the first step in ketone production is having enough fatty acids be delivered from your fat cells to the liver. So you can as, you know, you do have glucose coming into the blood and it's sort of trickling in, but it's not registering any major effect on insulin. So, you know, you're able to have glucose, uh, come in and main, you know, maintain your blood sugar levels on a steady, uh, uh level, but not impair fat burning to a great extent.
1: Uh, Jeff, we're, we're slowly winding down on our time here. Um, uh, maybe it'll just take about five minutes to, to direct a, a few more questions your way that, um, that, you know, don't necessarily fit specifically into the topics we've discussed today, but um but i'll I'll pose one for mary um Mary says, um as a scientist, are you satisfied that long term and by long term she clarifies years or a lifetime of nutritional ketosis is safe um and then she adds the caveat as long as health markers are good
2: yeah I, the answer is yes um and and I've been studying this for twenty years and and trying to uh really identify if there are specific individuals who don't respond well and you know I, I think the only caveat I'd say with that is if you have a well formulated ketogenic diet and this sort of takes us into a whole another discussion but there you know there are certain um, things that one needs to understand and when it comes to designing a ketogenic diet because there are changes for example in the way you handle minerals uh, and if you don't understand that your body excretes more sodium when you're in ketosis then you can run into problems. Not necessarily dangerous problems but uh, maybe enough to cause someone to have side effects and not be able to you know, continue the diet. But they're easily, uh, uh, those side effects are easily controlled if you, if you understand that and, and add an extra gram or two of, of salt in your diet. Um, there's issues around the quality of fat that you should emphasize on a ketogenic diet, and so forth. But overall, if you understand those principles, um, you know humans, um, you know, survived again during most of their time on this planet um, being at least uh, transiently in ketosis. So, um, and then we have examples from many cultures, like the Inuit and the Maasai, who uh, were they didn't just survive. You could argue. Um, many of those cultures thrived on a diet very low in carbohydrate that was likely ketogenic. So we have sort of that evolutionary and cultural um, history to draw on. And then we have all the modern science now that, uh, that sort of back up that, that premise that the diet is safe long term.
1: Caroline asks, um, what would you recommend for carbohydrate intake to keep blood sugar stable? She says, I know ketosis is 50 grams or less but what about just a lower amount per day? Do you have a general recommendation?
2: I really can't point to a a single number of grams of carbs per day or percent because people do vary so widely. I mean, in a profoundly insulin-resistant type 2 diabetic, um, they often require strict ketosis to be able to maintain blood sugar levels, but there are some very insulin-sensitive folks out there that can eat a lot of carbohydrates and their bodies tolerate it very well and they're able to maintain normal blood sugars so it really depends on the person uh... it can it can cover the whole gamut so uh... that's something each person sort of needs to figure out themselves. and and then as I said earlier it changes within a person too over time so it's kinda one of those uh... things that you need to kinda keep your eye on and and uh, and have regular sort of checkups to make sure that you know you're 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 not developing pre-diabetes or diabetes. And, and Exercise doesn't help everyone. I mean, there are no world-class athletes who've uh, developed type two diabetes, and the only way they could control it was to to restrict carbs.
1: Jeff, I'll I'll, I'll leave you with uh, two more questions. Um, so we've got one um, from Reggie, um, who says, you know, realizing that this may depend on each individual um how long does the adaptation period take if an athlete were to start adapting to the lower carb diet and and he says you know i'm in the midst of marathon training would you recommend start starting to implement the diet now or begin it after the race and experiment what level of carb intake is correct for me
2: there is a time period so it takes at least 3 to 4 weeks to kind of get your body switched over from a carb based to a you know a fatty acid and ketone based metabolism And if you don't understand that, you know, you might get discouraged because uh, uh, your performance will go down the first week. And you need to sort of adjust your training volume accordingly. You don't want to try this diet a week before a marathon because you'll uh, you'll almost surely be disappointed. Uh, So uh, we we usually recommend, you know, you kind of cut your volume of training in half the first week. And then gradually your tolerance to exercise will improve. And in many cases, or most cases, by two, three, four weeks, you're not only back up to your previous training volume, but you have a greater tolerance um, for, for training and improvement in uh, your ability to, to exercise. So um, you do have to kind of, you know, give it a good three to four weeks to come back. And there may be more subtle Adaptations that take even longer. We really don't understand this. It's something that we're we're trying to address in the laboratory. Um, but clearly, at least a, at least three to four weeks to get through that initial keto adaptation. then you know, I don't think there's any adaptation to use of UCAN, So that that's something that can be of benefit uh, on a low, moderate, or high carb diet. And it's something that should be evident right away.
1: Last one for you, Jeff. Um, again, I had a number of people ask some variation of this question, but if um you are on a low carb diet and counting carbs. Um, how should one count you can carbs um, on a low carb diet and And I just guess before you address that specifically, are you a proponent um, of counting carbs?
2: Um yeah, that's a great question. I wish I had an equally great answer <laughs> um, but you know what what I tend to encourage people to do at least if you're on a ketogenic diet there's a way to know if you're in ketosis you actually measure ketones and that's incredibly uh... helpful and empowering uh... for people to know if they're if they're in ketosis and you know you can do that with urine strips it's not the greatest method there's some problems with that in terms of false negatives and so forth Better if you can measure blood levels through a finger stick uh, using a glucometer uh, with uh, ketone strips versus glucose strips, um, because that actually tells you whether or not you're in ketosis, and so you can actually personalize the diet. And there's really no, you know, you don't have to count carbs that way. If you're not in ketosis, you know, you know you need to eat fewer carbs or, or possibly less protein too. Um, and And just know that you know whenever you're in ketosis, that's the sort of mix of foods that that you can eat. And you know whether or not you count superstarch carbs, um, you probably can get away eating more carbs if they're from superstarch. But again, the best way to know that would be to actually measure ketones. or if you're not in ketosis, at least measure your blood sugar to know that you're not stimulating, you know, your blood sugar levels after you consume meals.
1: If you are interested in, in really taking a deeper dive into to several of these topic areas, uh, two of Jeff's books, uh, both of which I've read, which are which are fantastic, uh, The Art and Science of Low-Carb Living, uh, The Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Performance, um, both really, really good reads, um, kind of depending on what you're interested in um, on a personal level of, of implementing this, uh, nutritional approach for, um, I highly recommend one or both of these books to really get a, a greater understanding on this. And, and then one of the big things that, that I think Jeff, um, talked about throughout this is really treating yourself like a laboratory. You know, I, there, there's ways to, to get the data, uh, there's ways to measure all this and, and really, uh, in order to, to understand the impact that carbohydrates are having on you, um, you really should be driven by the data. You know, you can certainly be driven by how you feel and what, what results you see in terms of body composition and, and weight loss, but ultimately the data will help you tell the story. So so both these books are available on Amazon and um, highly recommend checking them out. Um, Jeff, before we sign off today, anything uh, that you would like to add to close us out?
2: No, I just want to say thank you, Verone. It's It's a pleasure and I really appreciate the opportunity to share my perspective with everyone.
0: Thanks for listening to the UCAN Podcast, where we explore topics in health, fitness, nutrition, and sports. Check out the rest of our podcasts for more discussions with top athletes, coaches, researchers, and nutrition experts for the latest cutting-edge information. Make sure to follow us on social media at GenUCAN for all the UCAN news. That's G-E-N-U-C-A-N. Learn more about our revolutionary nutrition at generationucan.com.